Hey everybody, we are in our second week of our Christians Might Be Crazy series. We hope that you're getting a lot out of it just like we all are. God is so good at how he continues to lead us and guide us in the middle of the world we live in. So we're praying that God speaks to you and meets you right where you are today. And thanks again for being a part of this online. So if you're comfortable, then I want you just to tell him out loud. That's all I want right now. And if that's not part of your upbringing and you're not sure, then in your heart, tell him, I just want you right now. But let's make this the purpose that unites us all together from all our backgrounds and all that we bring together this week. The one thing is, Jesus, we just want you. Because if we have that, we have everything. And if we don't have it, we have nothing. And so, Father... It's our prayer, it's our worship, it's our heart, it's our desire. God, we're rich because we have you. And God, without you, mm, I don't even want to think about it. Thank you that as much as we want you, doesn't come close to how much you want us. And that you favor us with your presence and your life. And God, thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and you take a seat. If you want to, while you're sitting down, go ahead and grab your notes. There's a few fill in the blank, so you'll need a pen or a pencil. You can use the online notes that are available uh, on our app. And if you learn best by just listening, that's, uh, that's great too. Um, Came across a survey recently that got our attention. Ah, maybe before I do that, I told myself, don't forget, don't forget, and then I get up here and I forget. Uh, Rebecca Murley, thank you so much for last week. You did a fantastic job. Great teaching on the Holy Spirit. And it didn't hurt that you used my grandchildren in the message. So thank you. You're a very good teacher. And I appreciate your ministry gift here to our church. Rebecca, thank you so much. Uh, she began... Our series called Christians Might Be Crazy. And um, we don't mean that facetious, and we don't mean it ugly, and we don't mean it in a, in a joking manner. It's sort of a twist on words that in the culture at large that we live in, you do recognize that people who don't believe look at you like something's wrong with you, right? Yes. They don't get it. Why do you think the way that you think? Why, do you, why would you show up on a weekend off when the weather is finally halfway decent? <laughs> And be here tonight. Why would you give your money towards a cause that really you're never going to be repaid from, at least in this life? Why would you be a part of something that's volunteer and nobody's compelling you to go and give your time and your treasure and your talent to something? And so at large, when people look at us, they think without knowing any better Something's wrong with those people right there. So it's sort of a twist on, idea, on that idea that Christians might be. I didn't say they are crazy, but they might be crazy when compared to the culture at large. And so Rebecca began it last week talking a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit operates. And it was a really powerful message on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today... I'm going to take it in a little bit different direction. But this is sort of where our thing is coming from. There was a poll that we caught wind of 
uh, surveyed almost a million people, 913,425. Now this, let me just say this real quickly. It was all random calls, and I don't know about you, but I have caller ID, and anything I don't recognize, I don't answer. Anybody else like that? So how they got this poll, I, because I would think maybe three people would be a part of this poll. So I won't answer any question. But somehow they got a million people that they were able to poll. And then out of that, they broke it down into different subsets that they were able to pull interesting information from. And this is the one where we're going to go today. Of the almost million people uh, that had this conversation, the conversation on average uh, lasted 12 minutes. Uh, they, they pulled it into a subset of 1,000 people out of this 913,000. Uh, 1,000 of the people between the ages of 18 and 44 uh, average age was 31, and this is why this subset became interesting. They identified themselves, 25% were completely unchurched. No church background. Uh, if we were to say, hey, they're part of a post-Christian nation, they would have said, I was a never-Christian nation. Does that make sense right there? 25% is a large number of people. The other 75%, here was the word that they came up with, de-churched, which meant that Maybe when they were children, they attended church. Maybe at some time in their life, they were invited to go to church, but they affiliate themselves at this point as de-churched. Not that I, I never have been or that I never was uh, uh, familiar with any, any type of Christian doctrine or belief, but I simply, I don't have any place in my life where it fits. I'm not practicing uh, nothing. So this thousand subset was interesting because of their age, 18 to 44, the average age 31. They spent an average uh, of 12 minutes in the conversation. Uh, and then this part right here, they were asked their thoughts about Christians. And in a series of questions, they were asked to list top five things that you find fault with or that you would say, this is what a Christian is and why I don't want anything to do with it. And uh, the second one, I think, is the most interesting that I want to talk about today. And I bet you can guess what it is. Christians are? Very good. Did you look in the notes or did you know? <laughs> well, you're truthful, too. I'll give, you, I'll give you both. Christians are hypocrites. So I want to talk about uh, being a hypocrite today. I want to talk about what that means, why people think that about us. Is it true? Um, where does it come from? What do we do about it? That kind of thing. So I asked these two questions right off the bat. Uh, how many of you have ever known a hypocrite? Raise your hand real quick. You married one? <laughs> You're married to one? <laughs> um, the, the question is sort of a trick trap question because if you asked uh, and you're honest in your answer, um, everybody knows a hypocrite. Because in the most general terminology of hypocrites, it's a person who says one thing and what? Does another. another. Do you know anybody like that? I'm trying to get you someplace here and you're being a little, I think you know where I'm trying to take you, so you're being like, yeah, yeah, all right. Oh, let me ask you directly. Have you ever been a hypocrite? Seven of us. Let's try one more time. Ever been a hypocrite? You ever said one thing and done something else? In the strictest terms of what a hypocrite is, here's what we do. When someone else does it, you're a hypocrite. When we do it, we made a mistake. This is an accident. I didn't really mean that. That's not what I believe. That's not what I do. Give me another shot at it. And so we think by 
Uh, our definition, we're not, but some other people who do it are. And in fact, here's what's really strange. If you were to go home uh, this afternoon, this weekend, sometime during the week, and you were to actually look up the word hypocrite, hypocrite has been connected to Christians. There's actually a subset of a definition of a Christian that uh, it'll give the overall definition of a person who says one thing and does another, but then it also will draw out religious people. And especially, here's where it really comes from, religious leaders. Because religious leaders are set in a position of where we look up to them, and when they're saying one thing in front of everybody, but doing something completely different in private, yes or no, it brings a new meaning to the definition of hypocrite. So that's really how then it gets connected to the church, is that I think probably if you've had any experience in church, at some level, you probably have seen a leader who, who... fit the definition of hypocrite, or you've known nationally, I mean, good Lord, it, it's, if, if one of us in a leadership position makes a mistake, it's, it's like it makes the nas- national news. And the world loves to see it happen. They love it. So there's actually two, they actually put two, two definitions beyond the basic definition of a person who says something and does another. One's religious, and the other one is political leaders too. I agree with the political one, but I don't like the religious one. (laughs) So what is a hypocrite? Just real quickly, where does it come from? A hypocrite, the word hypocrisy, uh, actually goes back uh, a couple of thousand years. And the literal meaning of it is, some of you probably know this, it was the term for an actor. Does that help make sense? With, it's a person playing a role, which is how they then get the derivative of a person who stands up and they, they're playing a role, but in reality, that's not who they really are. And in the most technical terminology, listen to this, it means an interpreter from underneath. Underneath what? Actors, all the way back to Greek times, wore huge masks when they would present a play and the mask represented a character so that when they spoke, they spoke from underneath the mask That was called a hypocrite, and that became the thing that people stuck. That when you stand up, you wear this mask to make people think you're this thing, but when you're done, you take off the mask, and you're really a completely other, uh, different person. That makes sense? So here's here's what those masks look like, by the way. Look at that. How would you like to have to try to do a play with that on right there? That is one ugly mask right there. Uh, By the way, I'm looking at my haircut from the side, and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I need that mask right now. Max Johnson, who's one of our drummers, walking in, saluted me. Like, <laughs> Max. Yeah, his name in Greek means traitor. There. Uh, <laughs> so a hypocrite is a person wearing a figurative mask pretending to be something that they are not, and then through time and through experience, people just simply took the idea that when a person presents themselves as this particular thing, and yet they're not really that thing. And now notice the words. When you present yourself as a particular thing, but you're not really that thing. There's a difference between a person who really is this, but sins. And everybody in this room is a sinner, yes or no? So I'm going to say it one more time. Everyone in the room is a sinner, yes or no? I know you well enough that I bet, give me five minutes and I'll find it. One thing at least. We all sin. 
But a hypocrite is a person who does not say, hey, this is a reality. A hypocrite is a person, and this is why it makes it bad when it's a religious leader, because a religious leader will... the, the It's an arrogant thing that happens is that you get put on a pedestal. You begin to believe the things that are said about you, that you're above it. So you present yourself in this light. And, of course, what you're really presenting yourself for is a trip or a fall because you're not that thing. You're in the same boat as everybody else. You need a savior. And while you may have a title, a title is not a mask. A title is a thing that you're trying to live up to, but it does not make you perfect. So better to admit, I'm not perfect. And don't make the mistake of seeing me that way, as opposed to a person who then trips up on the ego. Hey, look at me. I got it all together, and yet is living a secret life behind. Because when it comes down, it is not just you that gets hurt, but you drag the name of everybody else who believes in Jesus through the mud with it. That's what's hurtful. Does that make sense? And then, of course, it's what it does to the character of the thing. So let's move to politics real quick. When a politician is like that, yes or no today, we live with a very low expectation of our politicians. We just automate. There's such disrespect for politicians. And in my mind, I have not lived long enough to see that much. But I, I do remember uh, in, in, uh, in Watergate when Nixon resigned that it ushered in. Saturday Night Live started the same year as the resignation of Nixon. And that year began the constant jokes about politicians being nothing. And it's become the national pastime for us to mock politicians as not really being honorable people. Yes or no? So the whole idea of hypocrisy and what it does and why, why do people, when they think about the church, think that it's full of Hypocrites. Why, why do they feel so comfortable to be able to say that? I wrote this down. It might be the very first thing that you want to copy with me. See if you can agree with this statement. Hypocrisy isn't a Christian problem. Hypocrisy is a human problem. Do you agree? That all of us, in the strictest definition of hypocrisy, it's a person who says one thing but does another, we all find ourselves as sinners who want to do this, but just like Paul said, the thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And then he makes this great theological statement, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And I've taught on this, and I won't go there right now, but the body of death is simply a colloquial statement that one of the punishments in Roman times is that if you committed murder, a way that they could punish you was to take the corpse and to chain it to your body so that you drug this corpse around with you as it decayed. Could you imagine that punishment right there? So when Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's referring to this colloquial term, but here's what it actually means. This flesh, Jesus said, put it to death, crucify it on the cross. Yes or no? But when it gets back up off the cross and does things that we can't stand, that's hypocrisy. Because we represent this one thing that we definitely believe in, but we also at times practice this body of death that we need to be delivered from. So a hypocrite is a person who doesn't admit that there's this stink. And a sinner saved by grace says, 
I can't deliver myself and I need someone to deliver me from this body of death. Does that make sense? It's really good teaching. Here's a thought. Let me see if I can get you to go along with me. If you had to, to put in a sentence, uh, boy, this is, when I wrote it, it made so much more, uh, it was easier for me to think in terms of like how a person could do this. And right now as I say it, um, it's going to be harder for you to do it. But if I asked you to give me one sentence of what the core belief of Christianity is, one sentence, not, not 15 principles, okay, not the greatest message you've ever heard. I'm asking for one sentence. What is the core belief of Christianity? Does anybody want to be brave enough to try? All of my friends are like, please don't look at me right now. <laughs> what did you say? That is an awesome answer. That is an excellent answer. If you didn't quote a scripture, okay? No, no, no. I'm going to... I'm. You get a gold star and credit right there. Okay, Unconditional love. That's a good one. And thank you for being brave. It's an excellent, excellent. Uh, I would put it in the top five, but I wouldn't say that's the, the one, although it's a part of it. You want me to move on and get away from you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, who's next? Fantastic. Very good. That is, that is excellent. That is a tenant. If I were to say, hey, top three tenets of what we believe, I would say that fits into the tenant. But I want you to boil down into just one sentence. What is the core belief of Christianity? Saved by grace and grace alone. That, that night, that's excellent. Love God, and love, your neighbor. love God and love your neighbor. That's the great commandment right there. I would agree that that's fantastic. Jesus Christ is Lord. I, okay, that's, all of those are good. Here's mine. I'm not saying that you're wrong and that I'm right. Here's how I boiled it down. I think, listen, listen, because I'm trying to connect it to this thing that, that people have associated with uh, why the church is full uh, of hypocrites. Here's what I think is the sentence. The core message of Christianity is look at our Jesus. Our Jesus is everything. Our Jesus is the only perfect one who ever lived. Our Jesus is God's son sent on our behalf. So all that you were saying with all the different scriptures and all that, you're all basically saying the same thing, but I'm just summing it up into a sentence. I think the core belief, the core understanding, the core thing that everyone could walk out of this room and that we could say is Christianity is about look at our Jesus, yes or no? And when we make our Christianity look at me, Look at how I live my life. Look at how it's changed me. Look at what a better person I am. Look at my faith. All of those things are good. I get it. But how about this? When you get people to get their eyes on you, you've set yourself up to fall as a hypocrite. Because the only one who ever lived a perfect life, the only one who ever lived the perfect life, that got God's gold star, that got God's approval, that God said he did it perfectly, the only one is Jesus, yes or no? And so our Christianity is not about us. And when we make our stuff and what we believe about us, the whole thing is about me, then we set ourselves up in front of the world to be people who cannot live up to. Look at me. Yeah. Do you really want people to scrutinize you? 
wow, I thought I'd get a better, let me, here's a chance for you to agree with me and be my friend no matter what. Do you really want people to look at you? Just like you don't want me to sit here and pick apart your theology right now. And I love you. What do you think the world would do? Dude, the core message of Christianity is it is about Jesus. Look at our Jesus. Our Jesus is everything. And anything else that our Christianity does that substitutes look at our Jesus makes it a world religion about us. And not the truth of God's love through his son. So all of the scriptures that were thrown out to me and all the things that you said, I love it. I agree. I'm not disagreeing. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying if I had to boil it down, I would say that our Christianity is pointing to, look at our, when we're witnessing to people, we're not saying, hey, look what it did. Look at me. We're saying, look at our Jesus. Look what Jesus did in me. Did you get it? So it's got to be about Jesus, man, because Jesus is the only thing that we can hold up. So the core message of our Christianity is look at our Jesus, not look at us. He was, is, and always will be the only perfect one. The other one right below that to fill in, self-aware. Write that down, self-aware. Do you consider yourself a self-aware believer? How you appear to other people. How what you believe appears to other people. How our church Affects our community. How believers are, excuse me, how society and how culture at large looks at the Christian faith, the Christian doctrine, and the Christian presentation. Are you self-aware enough to realize what people think? I got several scriptures that I want to read to you. Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 5. You can follow along with me. These are the words of Jesus talking about becoming self-aware. If I had to title this scripture as a subset of what it's about. I think he's saying, be self-aware. Look at these powerful words. Don't judge others, and you will not be judged. If it stopped right there, tell me that's not great advice. Thank you, four freaking people. I'm going to say it again. Tell me it's not great advice. Don't judge others, and you won't be judged. Think about it. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. This part is what I want you to see. Why worry about a speck of sawdust in your friend's eye when you have a humongous log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck when you can't see past the log in your own eye What's the next word? So Jesus' own definition of a hypocrite is when you make it about you. You got problems. Let me help you. And he uses the most interesting language that your neighbor, yes, they've got something, but it's as the size of a speck of sawdust. You, a lot... You ever got an eyelash in your eye? How bad does that hurt? One time in shop in high school, what am I doing? How many of you remember safety goggles? Every time the guy would turn his back, I'd take those stupid things off. I hated them. And I'm grinding on a piece of metal, and I'm the poster boy for why you wear safety goggles. It shot right into my eye. Right into my eye, man. 
and it penetrated the eye. I had to go to the hospital. It was a, it was a nightmare. I almost lost sight in the eye. It was, a, it was a funky thing. It hurt so bad. It, I, I can't tell you the nerve endings that are in your eye. Now, here's the funny thing. This little microscopic piece of metal that got in my eye, and my, it, was, it was so small. It was like the size of a splinter. But oh my gosh, did it hurt in my eye. They had to put a patch on my eye. It was almost a pirate up here, <laughs> close to it. And it, it, it was horrible. But the pain that it caused was just, it was unrelenting for days. It lasted and it lasted and it lasted. And I just could not get beyond this thing. And I think what Jesus is saying, so you, you look and you see this microscopic thing in your friend's eye, but you have this huge pain in your own eye and somehow you've learned to become blind to your own stuff. How can we be so blind to our own stuff? If we paid attention to our own stuff and worried about what's going on in here and not so much about out there. So I'm going someplace with this. I wonder if people would look at us different. Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own. Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And here's what he's saying. You can't even see well if you leave this thing in your eye while you're trying to handle everybody else's stuff. To become self-aware of our own need for God. By the way, I am not saying that we don't have an opinion about what's going on in society. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote about things that are moral issues. You know what? You happen to live in one of the great experiments that's ever happened in the history of the world. You can vote for laws. Most people just had them thrust on them and had to put up with whatever the king or the queen thought was the right way to go. We live in this experiment where we can vote. I'm not telling you not to vote, not to be involved, but I'm telling you when you get judgmental towards all the other stuff out there, but you're not paying attention to your own stuff, do your own, do you first before worrying about somebody else. Let me tell you how it pays off for you. In every message that I write, every, and I'm saying not some, not 80%, 90%, 99.9, every message that I write When I'm done writing it, I go back and I read it and I ask myself this question. John, do you have this own need in your life? Because if you see any of this in yourself, you want mercy, be merciful to other people then while you're talking to them. Don't be hard. Don't don't be hard-nosed. Don't just go after someone's jugular. Even if you have to say this is a problem, say that the answer is Jesus. Say that there's hope and there's mercy and there's grace for all of us. We're all in the same boat. I always try to approach every message aware of my own need for Jesus because when I'm aware of my own need for Jesus, it makes me aware of everybody else's need for Jesus. And when I lose sight of my own need for Jesus, which is what he's saying, when you can't see the board in your eye, you've lost sight of your need for grace. And when you've lost sight of your need for grace, you're an unmerciful, ungraceful person. And this is where the hypocrite thing comes in because the world can see what we become blind to. How about this? Can you agree with this statement? When my children were growing up, 
We had rules that applied. They were the leech rules that applied to the seven of us and not your family. Yes or no? I bet you have rules in your household that apply to you and they don't apply to me. Yes or no? So why in the world, church, here's what's happened to us. Somehow we've taken the gospel that was written for God's family and we think we need to apply it to the world at large. You didn't hear what I just said. Let me prove it to you. The gospel was not written to George Washington. It's for George Washington, but it was not written in 1776 to a Continental Congress who was forming their government on a belief in God. The gospel was written to a pagan government that did not give a rip about what Christians believe, what they did, or what they thought, yes or no. So everything that you read and all the rules that we are supposed to live by are not for the world at large. They are for the church inside. And if we just did, if we would just practice the rules in here and not worry about what's going on out there so much, which is not that we put our head in the sand, but listen to me. If we can't learn, live it out internally here, how in the world can we ever transmit it out there? So we come up with all these rules about sexuality. Let me come on this side. We come up with all of these rules about sexuality and what is okay and what's not okay. And I will agree with you, the Bible is very clear on those rules. But if we can't practice them and keep them inside of the church, who are we to tell someone out there, here's how you're supposed to live sexually? Did you hear what I just said? And if you get mad at me, then you believe some religious, unbiblical standard of what Paul wrote the Bible about and what Jesus was saying to us in it. It was written to a group of people who had no... You didn't get to vote. Many of them were slaves who had to live under the the auspice of, of the grace of their master. And Paul is saying, in the middle of a very pagan, ungodly, uncaring culture, you've got to live this way. And because they practiced it inside... The world saw the genuineness of it because it was lived out and not forsaken hypocritically. So it mattered to them and it actually took over the world. Today we believe that if we can force it on the outside, it will somehow change the inside. If we can't embrace it on the inside, how will the world ever embrace it on the outside? Okay, this is my opinion. I'm throwing it out at you. I know some of you are so into politics, you're mad at me right now. You think that I'm saying something that I'm not saying. You're ready to challenge me on it. Remember, my email is amy at jfc.org. I do answer email. So let me take you biblically to four stories of Jesus dealing with people who are not believers, who, who were not raised in, in the understanding of the things that we have. And I want to just show you, the only reason I'm going to read these scriptures to you, I want to show you three things that Jesus did in every one of these cases in dealing with people that kind of handles this idea of... So, so I think everybody uh, can be hypocritical except Jesus. So Jesus becomes our model. And if we can practice how Jesus did it, maybe it's a roadmap for how we can act in the world. 
So the first one is John 4. Uh, it has to do with a woman uh, at a well. It's, it's 19 verses of scripture. If you're like, oh my God, I can't. No, pastor, please, I'm going to pass out after 19 verses. Good, pass out. Jesus knew. The Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way, which meant he would have had to have walked. A Jew was not supposed to go through Samaria because they didn't socialize with this particular group of people. What a hypocritical thing. And Jesus would have had to have walked 20 miles minimum out of his way to avoid talking to a certain group of people. And Jesus, just as he was apt to do, it was about people, not about the law. Love that about Jesus. So Jesus decided, hey, I'm not going around. I'm going through. So he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to a Samaritan village called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the, wall, uh, the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was very surprised. This is why. Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans, and Jesus is dressed like a Jew. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. Jesus did not have a sign that said, I'm Jewish. He did not have a ring that was the star of David. He was dressed like a Jew. He would have looked, you would have looked at him you would have said he's like any other Jew until he began to teach and talk and act. So the woman's surprised for Jews we have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God uh, that he has for you and who you were speaking to, you would actually ask me and I would give you living water. What, what a statement. But sir, you don't have a rope or bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he did and his sons and his animals and what they enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give them will never be thirsty. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Well, of course, the woman's completely intrigued by this. Not so much with just who Jesus is, but that he's offering her this thing she's never, ever heard of, but she wants it. I want that. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water so I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So in her mind, Jesus is going to relieve her of the burden of manual labor, but he's speaking of spiritual things, right? Okay. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, listen to these words, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five of them, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly know how to speak the truth. What a complimentary thing to say. <laughs> I, could you imagine being the one who's like, uh, I got no husband. I know. You've had five. And the one you're with now, you're right. He's not your husband. You're the most truthful woman I've met today. <laughs> Somehow he was able to tell the truth and yet not condemn her in the truthfulness of the scripture. Yes or no? Because she doesn't call him a name. 
She doesn't throw the water at him. She doesn't say, hey, shut up, big mouth. She, she literally, she's, she's caught dead to rights. Sir, the woman said, look at her response. You must be a prophet. <laughs> a prophet. To suddenly be confronted with all that's going on in your life and not to become so angry and not to become so, like, who do you think you are to say that to me? There must have been something in the way that Jesus could talk to someone. Here's what I think it is. Jesus could love them and tell them the truth at the same time. And maybe the missing art in the church today, look, is that instead of looking at someone and telling them the truth and loving them in spite of it, we look at them and judge them. And I just want to ask you, when someone judges you, including the people you're close to, how does it make you feel? Are you just like, oh, please tell me more. You're on a great roll. Go ahead and just keep going. I feel so good. Of course not. We reject it out of hand. And so then the world's response is, hey, you're no better than me. You act like you are, but you got stuff going on. You know what you are is a hypocrite. And the difference between being a hypocrite is that the only one who could say it without it being true was Jesus. But he's trying to give us a model that if you're going to tell the truth, you've got to do it with love. Let me give you the second story. The woman that's caught in adultery. John chapter 8. It's 11 verses. An entire day is summed up in 11 verses. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered. He sat down to teach them, as he always did, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law. Notice who it always is that he's in confrontation with. It's not people. It's religious people. The ones who should have got it and been on his side were the ones he fought with. So he is speaking, and the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and I don't have time to go into it. How did they catch her? Where's the dude? My opinion, it's a setup because they were always trying to trap him. So they pay some guy to pick at this poor woman, knowing at this time we want to bust in the room and catch you red-handed. You can walk out. It's her that we want. And the reason we want her is we're going to bring her in front of Jesus and we know whatever answer he gives, we got him. If he doesn't back up the law, then he's a false prophet. And if he does, then he agrees with us and we're right. That's a tricky place to be. Tricky place. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Do you really think they cared? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote in the dust with his finger. It's the word in the Greek, cartographo. I've taught this years ago. It means to draw a graph. Perhaps what it means is that Jesus drew the names of the people there and then the sins they had committed that day. All I know is this. Whatever he wrote in the ground stopped them dead in their tracks. It stopped them dead in their tracks. 
They kept demanding an answer, goading him, speak to us. You need to speak to this matter. You need to stand up. Can't you see how bad things are giving, getting? So Jesus stood up and said, okay, here's my answer. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. What a brilliant answer. Then he stooped down again to write in the dust. Do you think they're hoping he won't do that? When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. Look at this. Look why it includes this. Beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So the oldest, the oldest Pharisee, the oldest lawkeeper, the one who knew the most, the one carrying the biggest rock most likely, was the first one to drop it and walk away. Why? Because at least with age should come the fact that you realize I'm being stupid. Yeah. Right. And I need to knock it off. And it was probably the youngest one still standing there like, in a way. (laughs) Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. If it ended right there, it's grace. But we have this next statement which makes it grace and truth married together. So he says, I don't condemn you, but go and what's the word? Some translations say, leave this life of death that you're on because it's killing you. Somehow, he had the ability, the only one, listen... The only one who could have thrown the stone was Jesus because the only one without sin there was him. Yes or no? And the only one who's not wanting to throw the stone is Jesus. So he actually uses himself. Hey, anybody like me without sin? Go ahead. But they all knew. And I think they knew because he had written it on the ground and they couldn't deny it. All he needs to do is stand up and begin to read it out loud. You, Caiaphas. Remember last night about two? Weren't you with someone too? Somehow he could marry truth and love together so that he could walk through the world, listen, forgiving people but not condoning sin. What a powerful concept. To call out sin and yet love. And so we have that little, you know... Uh, uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. And somehow that's become code for being just violent. And that's the last thing that Jesus was. Jesus was completely loving towards this woman. And I think, here's what the Bible says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. How about...